Good morning, church. In Psalm 46, we're reminded that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present ever help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. With these words in mind, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness and acknowledge you as our ever-present help. This morning, as we draw near to you in prayer, we recognise that you lift us above the concerns and fears of this world, offering us your peace, healing, wholeness and refreshment. Dear Lord, at this time we bring to you our concerns regarding the coronavirus, COVID-19, and the terrible impact that it's having on our community, our nation and our world. When it seems like the whole world is changing, we praise you, Father, for you never change. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for you are the same yesterday, today and forever. In the midst of frightening circumstances, we thank you for the confidence and assurance you bring to us, and we celebrate the hope available to all believers. Loving Heavenly Father, at a time of great need, please pour out your saving grace on our world and bring people into your kingdom in extraordinary ways. We ask that you come powerfully to our nation in these dark and difficult days. May this virus and all the circumstances surrounding it be used to turn people's hearts and minds back to you in repentance and faith. In a world so often built on shifting sands, may people turn to you for a sure foundation, whether for the first time or in a fresh way. May they know Jesus as the rock on whom they can put their trust. Lord, give all Christians the courage to openly share their faith and to point others to you, the one in whom there is real hope. Lord, we pray for those experiencing fear and anxiety. May they find the true peace that comes from a pers personal relationship with you. We pray that your peace will come to all who are fearful, anxious and feeling isolated. Help and encourage those receiving treatment or under quarantine. May they each sense your healing touch in the midst of their suffering. Lord, we lift to you our concerns for people who are more likely than others to become severely ill from this virus, the elderly and those with chronic health conditions. Protect them from harm and be their comfort in this time of uncertainty and isolation from their loved ones. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of modern medicine. Thank you for all those who have dedicated their lives to treating the sick in our community. For health workers, doctors, nurses and paramedics, protect and sustain them. Give them wisdom in their caregiving and the strength, energy and courage to carry on despite the difficulties they face. Lord, while comforting those who are mourning the loss of loved ones, please also prosper the work of those who are seeking a vaccine for the virus. We pray for those who govern us and acknowledge the enormous pressure they are under. For our Prime Minister, 
of the premiers and chief ministers who make up the special cabinet. For all people making decisions that will affect the lives and future well-being of others, give them wisdom and wise counsel. Guide their deliberations. Leave them to act with clarity, care and generosity. Please withhold power and influence from anyone who would use this time for selfish gain of any kind. In the uncertainties we face, may your light shine on the path ahead and guide us in the correct direction. We also pray for our police force, our emergency services and defence force personnel as they seek to maintain order in our country. May all Australians respect their work and accept the limitations that have been placed on our freedoms in order to protect the welfare of our community. Lord, we pray for teachers and others involved in training and care of children. Guide them as they meet new challenges and ever-changing duties in the emerging virtual school environment. Help them to adapt to shifting care settings and different methods of teaching. While our regular fellowship gatherings are interrupted, please continue to provide meaningful ways for your people to stay connected to one another. We thank you for the technology and modern means of communication that are available for us to utilise. Strengthen us to care for one another in imaginative and genuine ways and to be especially aware of those who are already feeling lonely and isolated. Lord, as businesses and schools close and families adjust to everyone being at home, we ask that you guide people in their new realities. Give spouses grace for each other. Prompt worn-out parents to speak words of kindness and encouragement to their children. Help children to continue learning and to find creative ways to experience the beauty of all you have created. Lord, in a changing employment environment, draw close to the anxious hearts and troubled minds of those who are now facing great financial stress. Please protect them and their families from long-term economic damage and guide them day by day and step by step through this crisis. Give each of us the calmness and wisdom we need to bring comfort and blessing to those we will have contact with in the days, weeks and months ahead. Plant in the heart of each of us the spirit to love our neighbours as ourselves, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in caring for those around us, friends and strangers alike. At this time we earnestly pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, help each of us to draw close to you day by day, to hold firm to the promises that you are indeed our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. May we all know the peace that passes understanding as we place our trust in Jesus, in whose powerful name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody watching today. And thank you, Cathy, for that beautiful little video. Today, I want to talk about changing lives. Changing lives in the context of our theme this year of going deeper. And this time, deeper into discipleship. Pastor Sam has touched on discipleship in the last few weeks in his preaching on 40 Days of Purpose. And today, I want to go a bit deeper still. You notice 
that it's going to be discipleship question mark today. There's a question mark about discipleship and we'll get into that when it's near the end of this message. And at the end of today's message, I'm going to ask every adult in this church to do something. And it's important for each one of us, for you and for our church as a body, that we get a good response. So let's get started. I love Rick Warren's take on discipleship from the first edition of 40 Days of Purpose. You were created to become like God, Christ. This is a point that Pastor Sam touched on in his message on Palm Sunday not that long ago. There's our tree again, and the quote is spot on. So what does changing lives mean? Well, the starting point is the Easter message. On Good Friday, we heard that Jesus died on the cross for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, so that all who repent and give their lives to Jesus receive that forgiveness. As Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On Easter Sunday, we rejoiced. We rejoiced in the good news that Jesus rose from the dead as he had said he would. Now this was probably the biggest promise that Jesus ever made. And to make sure that we remembered it, he said it many more times. And he kept that promise. He defeated death and he rose again. And if he can keep that promise, we can be certain that he will keep all the other promises and claims that he has made. And there have been no reports of Jesus dying in the last 2,000 years, so we can only assume that he's still alive today. Hallelujah for that. Now, what's even more astonishing is that as soon as we receive God's gift of forgiveness, God then confers upon us three more wonderful gifts. And these are, first, he adopts us into his family as brothers and sisters to Christ and co-heirs with Christ. Second, he offers us an intimate personal relationship with himself without intermediaries, where if we want to, we're privileged to be able to call him dad. And finally, he offers us eternal life with himself and Jesus. Now, when it comes to conversion, I, I love Pastor Diet David Smyer's description of doing business with God and with Jesus. And so when it comes to changing lives after our conversion, what sort of doing business does God want with new Christians? When the new Christian asks, what happens next? What do we say? This opens up lots of things for us to think about. First, what does God have in mind when he chooses to save us? Why is dealing with sin his first priority? Why adopt us into his family? Why is he prepared to have a relationship with us now? Why the promise of eternal life? So what is God's plan? On Palm Sunday, Sam neatly summarised God's plan as gathering a family together that will live in love with him forever. God's plan is to restore his creation, including humanity, to how it was before the fall. 
That means God wants to restore an intimate relationship with a sinless humanity, as it was before the fall. Why so? God is a relational God. He's existed in relationship in the Trinity, in a relationship of perfect love for all eternity. He created humanity to be in the same sort of relationship with him. So have you ever wondered why God just doesn't take us straight off to heaven the moment we accept his grace? Why does he leave us in this fallen world? I read a little while a great quote, and it was, The hallmark of conversion is to see our own spiritual poverty. I'll repeat it. The hallmark of conversion is to see our own spiritual poverty. We know that we don't immediately turn into perfect people when we're converted. Ask your husband, ask your wife, ask your children, ask your parents, and they'll tell you that no, you're not perfect yet. Do you think God wants us in heaven with him, with Jesus, for all eternity? Yes, yes, yes. But with all of our imperfections, well, not if many of these can be changed in this life. When we start our new life with Christ after conversion, we carry with us all that spiritual poverty, our faults and weaknesses, our ignorance, our bad attitudes and habits, our deep hurts. Wouldn't you think that God would want to address these things? How about this one, kids? What if you got a text from the Queen tomorrow saying that she wanted to adopt you into the royal family and that you'd be looked after for, looked after for the rest of your life? Don't you think you might have to make just a few changes to be able to fit into the royal family? You might have to learn how to do those royal duties. What about when you go to a foreign country? If you want to get along and relate with people who live there, you have to try and fit in with their customs and culture. Wouldn't you expect the same for the kingdom of heaven? And if your main aim is to escape hell, shouldn't you at least think about what it's going to be like to be with Christ in eternity? That's a long time, eternity. Shouldn't you have some desire to get on with him, or at least try and have something in common with him? And what if God has things for us to do while we're still in this life? What is God's plan for us for the rest of our earthly life? Well, the New Testament is very clear that God's plan for each of us, his will for every believer, is to grow towards spiritual maturity in our earthly life. It's another point Sam has mentioned in recent weeks then what is spiritual maturity? There's a group in America called the Barna Group which does research on such questions. And they did a survey on spiritual maturity in 2009 and these are the results they came up with. And you can see there were many people who thought many different things about spiritual maturity, but overall you'll have to say our American Christian brothers and sisters were pretty confused. Rick Warren says simply about spiritual maturity, you were created to become like Christ, as we saw earlier in that second overhead. But how like Christ? Well, in our scriptural knowledge, in our understanding, in our character, in our lifestyle, and in the way that we behave. 
In our home group last year, we looked at this and we summarised this as to know, to be and to do. And we shortened it to no be do. Because the concept of being born again and becoming a new Christian doesn't apply until after Jesus' resurrection, then you have to look in the Bible after Jesus' resurrection in Acts and the letters, especially the letters, to see what God has to say on growing into spiritual maturity. For example, from Romans 8.29, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. That's the message translation. And from Hebrews 6.1, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Now, I can give you at least another 30 verses from the New Testament on this same subject of God wanting us to grow into Christ-likeness. When you read the letters in the Bible, you'll see most of them are growing up. Some of the analogies used in the letters are a growing person, a growing plant, running a race, which Sam mentioned back in March, building a structure, growing stronger, becoming perfect or mature, and spiritual transformation. God wants us to grow up. He gave us a new life and a new nature when we accepted Christ, and now for the rest of our lives, he wants us to continue the process of changing ourselves, growing to be more and more like Jesus in understanding, character, lifestyle and behaviour. Not in appearance, not in personality, but understanding, character, lifestyle and behaviour. As I said earlier, have you ever wondered why God doesn't just immediately take us to heaven the moment we accept his grace? Why does he leave us in this fallen world? Why, while we're still in this life, is growing in spiritual maturity God's plan? Well, first, he wants us to become more holy, to prepare us for our eternal life with him. And secondly, the process of becoming more mature requires that we end up serving God within his church and in the world. He wants us to attract new believers. He wants us to help strengthen, expand and perpetuate his kingdom. He wants us to do the good works that he's prepared for us now. And he wants us to bring glory as we do his will. So we need to understand that there are these two importance to growing spiritually to become more and more like Jesus. And these have the names of sanctification, becoming more and more holy, and discipleship, as we just mentioned. Sanctification. Sanctification is God's activity in moving a person towards spiritual maturity. Another word for sanctification is becoming holy. It's not a mystical experience in which holiness is ours without effort. God sanctifies us by engaging our minds, wills, emotions and actions. We are involved in the process. That's why biblical teaching on sanctification makes it clear that both God and the Christians have roles to play. The second part is discipleship. Discipleship is man's activity in an, and involvement in the life of another believer which moves that believer forward towards spiritual maturity. Discipling should happen intentionally and Christians should be involved in growing in a disciple-discipler relationship. The goal in discipleship is to move both the person towards spiritual maturity 
and to bring them to the point where they can disciple someone else. As we mature in Christ, the focus of our lives should increasingly shift towards living the life of service that we previously mentioned. So what is exactly discipleship? Is it learning about Jesus? Is it about our relationship with Jesus? Is it knowing Jesus? Is it understanding Jesus or seeing Jesus more clearly or following Jesus or some or all of these? It's almost confusing as that survey we looked earlier, isn't it? Discipleship includes all elements, elements of all of these things, but particularly following Jesus. The original disciples, those he called to follow me, were in constant relationship with Jesus for a little bit more than three years. Now, I love the last verse of that old hymn, Trust and Obey, and I'll do my best, sheep, do my best. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he says we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to be close to him, in watching him, in learning from him, and in relating with him, in that sweet fellowship with him. You can't follow Jesus from a distance, and you can't follow him just on Sundays. And you can't expect, if you do that, to become well-discipled. Now, I'm getting a bit sidetracked here, but rather than look at all these different elements of discipleship today, I suggest this is the following, de the following definition for discipleship is one of the best I've come across. Discipleship is learning from Jesus how I should live my life as he would live my life if he were me. I'll say that again a bit more slowly. Discipleship is learning from Jesus how I should live my life as he would live my life if he were me. Notice that this definition implies all of your everyday life, all of every day. Think about it, all of every day, wherever that may be. Let me tell you a little story. It's about a man named John who's about two years older than me, very godly man, and he mentored me when I was a young Christian. And the story starts with John being a middle manager in a government department on his way to work and crossing Victoria Square one morning. And he was accosted by a scruffy, unkempt, unshaven, ruffian-looking bloke who said to him, Mate, can you give me the price of a cup of coffee? What would you have done? What would you have done? My initial reaction that, that back then would have been to say, nick off or turn my back and just walk away. What did John do? John said he wouldn't give the man money, but he would take him across to a nearby cafe and buy him a cup of coffee. And then he'd buy a de decent breakfast of, ham and, of bacon and eggs. And he'd sit with the man and talk to him the whole time. The man looked at John for a few seconds, then he turned his back and walked away. Now, as this story kept coming back to me over the first couple of years after I heard of it, 
I was pretty comfortable with my turning the back response. But as the years went by, I became less comfortable. Every time the, I remembered this story, I felt more and more easy about how I would have reacted. Perhaps I should have just given the man the money and walked off. But what made me even more uncomfortable was that I couldn't understand why John did what he did. Finally, only a little while ago, I saw the light. I realised that this is what Jesus did. Read the Gospels and you'll find time after time Jesus reaching out to the poor people, the despised people, the down and outs and the despicable. This is what Jesus did. And you, you have to realise now that that was exactly what John was doing. He was doing what Jesus would, would have done if Jesus had been John in that circumstance. So if we're reaching out, we have to be careful that we don't always reach out to those sorts of people we're comfortable with. There are going to become times when you're going to be asked to reach out to someone that you're definitely not comfortable with. But for me, it was even a bit more worrying than that. Why had it taken me about 20 years to reach this same level of maturity, if I've actually reached it? What would I do now? Why has no one in my lifetime as a Christian discipled me so that I should do what Jesus tells me to do and what I see him doing? Why has no one taught me this about Jesus? Even if someone years ago had given me one of those what would Jesus do bracelet things, you know, WWJD, at least that would have made me think. Discipleship for me over the last 20 or so years? Now, let's get back to the message. The goal of discipleship and the ultimate meaning of spiritual maturity is to become like Jesus. His first disciples had three and a half years being with him every day. Becoming like Jesus meant being with him as his disciple or his apprentice. But that was back then. How does it happen for us? If discipleship is God's plan, then it has to be God's responsibility to carry out the plan. So is discipleship sovereignly performed only by God or does the believer also have a part to play? Well, actually, God has chosen to delegate part of the responsibility of growth to the believer, but he's also chosen to delegate part of the responsibility to the church. So there are three parties involved in discipleship. <clears throat> First, God. Through his presence with us, through Jesus, through the Spirit, through his word, by motivating us and providing all the energy we need, he has made available all the resources we need. Secondly, the church. The church exists to bring the two parties together to provide the context or environment and to encourage, help and assist the person to grow. And third, we as immature believers must first choose to use these resources that God has provided and then persevere in using them. This requires effort, hard work, bit of discipline, lots of obedience, understanding what it costs God and depending on him to lead us towards holiness. We don't need to discuss God's role in this. 
And I'm going to leave the immature Christian's role for another time. I want to finish today's message by looking at the church's role in bringing us to spiritual maturity. Rick Warren wrote a companion book to 40 Days of Purpose, the book that we've just been studying, and that book was entitled The Purpose Driven Church. And in that, he identified five tasks or purposes that Christ, the head of the church, wants his church to accomplish. And these are worship, ministry, evangelism, fellowship, and discipleship. Now, these line up pretty well, the Acts 2 church, but also you can read behind the lines there, there is the great commandment, there is the second commandment, and there's also the great commission. Now, almost all of us will agree that our Hills CFC church is doing really well with worship, really well with fellowship, and really well with ministry. But as for discipling and evangelism, not so sure. What do you think? Is our church attracting new believers? Is our church growing in numbers and growing in spiritual maturity? Don't really know. Bit hard to say. Can't really tell. Rick Warren goes on to say, a church family helps you develop spiritual muscle. You'll never grow to maturity just by attending worship services and being a passive spectator. Only, spirit, only participation in the full life of a local church builds spiritual muscle. And furthermore, he goes on, we need more than the Bible to grow. We need other believers. We grow faster and stronger by learning from each other and being accountable to each other. When others share what God is teaching them, I learn and grow too. Has anyone here ever been an apprentice? I'm sure if you have, you'll agree with me that in your apprenticeship, what you learnt from other tradesmen or proper workers, from watching and working with them, was far more important than any formal lessons that you attended. And so it is with the church. Well, how does our church, the Hills Christian Family Centre, measure up against this discipleship purpose? Now, in 2018, the CFC issued a document called Moving Forwards. And in that document, it had some strategies. And one of the strategies is about discipleship. And I'm going to read it to you. And that is, to disciple Christians and bring them maturity by teaching them to prayerfully apply God's word to their daily lives. We'll provide Christian education courses and discipling programs for all age groups and for all stages in Christ, of Christian development. And we'll encourage the training of the church, uh, church for church planters and Christian leaders for active, active full-time ministry service in Australia and abroad. So, how would you say our CFC Church in the Hills is going with this? If you're not sure... You're not alone. For about the last 60 years, there's been a problem recognised with discipleship throughout churches in the Western developed world. Here's a few quotes from some, spirit, from some church leaders in America. I am deeply concerned that the church seems to be losing ground in producing mature followers of Christ. 
Perhaps the greatest challenge the church has faced is the shallowing of the church. Pastors of some of the nation's largest churches describe their congregations as a mile wide and an inch deep. You'll find few scholars or leaders in Christian circles who deny we're supposed to make disciples to Jesus and teach them to do all the things Jesus said. We just don't do what he said. We don't seriously attempt it. And apparently, we don't know how to do it. I've come across a lot more quotes from this, from these three. And here's one which made me feel quite sad, from the pastor of a small church of about 100 people. This pastor has concluded that something is missing which causes lack of God's blessing. And it is suggested that this is discipleship. God blesses obedience and commitment. The pastor bears much of the responsibility here. A great deal is said about the necessity of outreach and evangelism and a certain amount of pastoral visiting, and many of the people are busy doing church activities. But they're not engaged in making disciples, partly because they don't really know how to, partly because they're not motivated to, but mainly because the congregation is largely composed of individuals who haven't been to exposed to real discipleship themselves. They don't know how to be disciples, much less how to make disciples of others. Now, these church leaders' views are backed up by other Barna Group research that we looked at before into discipleship in America, but we haven't got time to go through those today. Let's get back to that question we asked a few minutes ago. How do you feel our CFC church in the hills is growing with discipleship? How many baby Christians do we have, and are they growing? Do we have an unknown, untapped resource of spiritually mature believers? What can we say about the spiritual maturity of the church as a whole? Are we growing, or are we stuck in a rut? What are we doing to meet that CFC strategic plan? So here's what that discipleship question mark we talk about right at the start of this message comes in. In any church, you'd expect to find a balance between new Christians and mature Christians to disciple them. In our church, we don't really know. Now, if we don't know we have a problem, then we can't properly fix it. So we need to identify if we do have a problem with discipleship in our church and what it is, before we can plan and implement the best actions to fix it. Is there a one-size-fits-all approach, or do we need to do something different person by person? We don't know. But if there is a problem, then fix it we can, and fix it we must. So what we've decided to do is do a survey of the congregation to identify if there is a problem and work out what it is. The survey will be anonymous, We would like every adult attending church to do the survey and questions will consider both the evidence of discipleship and the contributors to discipleship. What do we expect to find? Well, as my statistical consultants have pointed out, provided we get enough responses back to get a statistically significant response, we expect to find what's called a normal distribution in responses. And we've got some distributions on the next slide that we're going to show you now. The one on the left is a typical normal distribution, and what we're interested in is that middle point, the mean. And 
if we did the same survey in two or three years' time, we'd be liking to shift that mean across to the right. The other two graphs, the one in the middle and the one on the right, are showing how the responses are distributed. If you look at the one on the right, it shows you that we're all fairly close together. There's a very tight mix of spiritually mature and not so mature people. And if we were going to do something with that group, then we could use a one-size-fits-all approach. But if you look at that graph in the middle, which is the flattened spread out one, um, then you'd see you've got a, quite a large number of well-discipled people, but quite a large number of less-discipled people. And how could we use the more-discipled people to then contribute to the discipling of the less? So the, the shape of the graph is very important. How's all this going to happen? Well, sometime today, Sam's going to re-mail each adult with the survey form as a Word document attachment. Please download it and complete it for yourself. If you receive emails from Sam at a family level, please download extra copies for other, other adult family members. The survey is going to look a bit like this. Please complete the survey by putting a Y a letter Y or a letter X or whatever you choose in only one of the five columns, like the example shows. Think carefully about each question. If you're not worried about privacy, send it straight back to me at rsullivan.adam.com. If you are worried, send it back to Sam and he'll forward your attachment only, your completed survey to me. It'll take about 15 minutes of your time. Do it today, please. The longer you leave it, the less likely you will be to complete it. And also, it's going to take me a long time to collate and transpose all the responses onto my clunky old spreadsheet. So the sooner I get them, the better. Please, please do not ignore or forget this request. It is important for our church to identify the condition of discipleship within the church if we're going to plan the best way forward for our whole body to grow. For us all, this is a key part of going deeper. Thank you.